This is The Shift with Drex On Demand. This is the Shift Daily Podcast. Joining us now to talk about the, uh, the the world of weird things, it is Greg Fish. And my first introduction to Greg. Hello, and thanks for joining us here. Always a pleasure. Yeah, so uh, we're going to be talking about cybersecurity in the sense that your most recent article on worldofweirdthings.com, I will read the headline. It says, hackers aren't getting better so why do we keep getting hacked? Greg, that's an excellent question because it feels like here in 2020, cybersecurity should be theoretically like rock solid, right? We've been using the internet for over uh, two decades now. It feels like all of us should be very comfortable with how to protect ourselves online. It doesn't seem to be the case, though. No, not at all. And really, one of the best illustrations of this is when whenever people talk about cyber warfare and cyber weapons, they talk about uh, foreign hackers getting into computers that control power stations and power grids and shutting off power to entire nations, leaving them in the dark. And when you talk to cybersecurity experts, they'll tell you, well, if people just updated their computers, stop setting admin passwords to admin and password, um, <laughs> and stopped, stopped their employees from picking up USB sticks that are randomly laying around and mm. like gas stations and their favorite lunch spots and stick it into computers and, you know, actually update default passwords. 99.9% of these threats would be completely mitigated. It's, it's mind blowing, right? The fact that it feels like so many people out there are either A, not updating their passwords and creating new ones on a pretty regular basis, maybe like once a year is not good enough. I would be surprised if most people are even doing that much. And then also B, using the same passwords for multiple accounts across the internet, whether it's the same password for your Facebook that you would use on Twitter, that you would use on Instagram. Those are just social media sites. But then there's online banking. There's Amazon, which has, of course, information to your credit card all associated with it. It's mind-blowing to me that people don't take that extra step to secure themselves. Yeah, it is. But at the same time, you can kind of see why this is the case. So in in slight defense of these people, mm. what is happening is that we are being asked to remember 20, 30, 40 passwords. And a lot of them are for completely inconsequential things. And if someone, you know, hacks your Spotify account and sees your playlist, Okay, well, not necessarily that big of a deal. Mm. Um, at the same time, things like banking passwords and things like your anything that's protected by a credit card, you want to have a nice, long, strong passphrase, not even just a password, but a passphrase. And the biggest thing is, though, uh, when you mention changing your passwords often, that actually doesn't help. In fact, a lot oh. of security researchers find that, that that that's a problem because what happens is people start just inventing passwords that are easily predictable in the sequence. You know, they, they put in password one and then it's password two and then it's password three and then password one, two, three, because it's hard to remember 40 different passwords as they keep changing all the time. And when it comes to password managers, yes, People will sometimes use password managers, but then they might not be able to use them for all the websites that they have, especially for work. So there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of problems there with just demanding passwords all the time. So there's been definitely a search for how to make it easier. Now, unfortunately, a lot of times what also happens is that you have companies that create software and a lot of websites that you use, and they don't really take security that seriously. Not necessarily because 
they want to shirk security or they don't care about it all, but because it's their last priority. Security doesn't sell unless you have a very specialized product. Mm. Features sell. Being able to share something with with your friends sells, and the fact that your password is going to be stored using a slow hashing algorithm and salted and 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 encrypted during transit that you just assume that that's already there so no one really cares so as a result especially when you have companies that try to get their code done for the cheapest price with just as many people as quickly as possible as they can to get the feature out by the time that they promised a lot of corners actually get cut and a lot of those corners end up having to do with security where certain uh, where certain endpoints aren't checked, certain features aren't secure. So hackers can really run these scripts that have been around for literally decades at this point, check for very well-known vulnerabilities, and find quite a few of them, like passwords that haven't been set um, correctly or, or that are very weak, um, passwords from breaches that have been uh, very poorly secured and have been completely decrypted, um, and easy to use because people reuse the passwords to get into people's accounts. So it's just a whole, uh, it's just a whole ecosystem of bad decisions leading to bad outcomes. And it's not, it's just not really taken seriously because very few people make it a priority to take it seriously. Well, I, I want to get your thoughts then on certain phone apps that ask you for maybe a different alternative method of security. So I had on my old phone, it's not really uh, my, my current phone, which is a Google Pixel 4. It doesn't offer it. But my old Android, in order to access my banking account, uh, my banking app, it would actually uh, ask if I wanted to use a thumb, uh, what is it, like a fingerprint scanner, which was available on my old phone. In terms of something like that, is that uh, something you would recommend people would, would start using? Because, you know, nothing's more unique than your own fingerprint. Your your fingerprint can be faked, but it's becoming more and more difficult. So I would recommend people use different um different ways of authenticating. But the number one thing that I would recommend is using multi-factor identification. So when it asks you to download an app that gives you a little token code or, or a little passcode that you have to enter after your password, or that it sends a text to your phone or a link to your email, I would suggest that you use it because that stops a lot of potentially devastating hacks. Because the number one thing that a hacker is going to do when they get access to your account somehow is they're going to try and change your password to lock you out. Mm. The minute they try to do that, you get a notification that says, hey, enter your authorization code. Now, the hackers don't have that. It is extremely difficult to get that. They would require them to hack your phone as well or hack certain apps and multiple accounts at once. So you can usually either stop them or when you are using these yourself, you know for a fact that, yes, this is me, this is protected. If I get an email saying, hey, there's been weird sign-on, you you know, yes, it's me, all the timestamps add up. The biggest social media sites in the world where like, you know, millions, maybe even like I want to say potentially billions of people are using like Facebook, for example, those sites seem to rarely get hacked into at least, you know, we've never really heard of or at least I haven't personally a big Facebook leak where all these account informations are being shared with the entire world. If you want to look it up, if you're willing to do something like that, how is it that those companies stay that one step ahead? It seems they sell that data. Oh, great. They protect that data pretty closely because they sell it. <laughs> like that's the, that's the whole thing. You're 
for for Facebook, you're the product. Your time and attention and your digital trail is the product. And they defend that and they want to send that. But then at the same time, if you leave a lot of things in your account public, then there's really not very much to protect because everything is just easily accessible with a web search. Hmm. So a lot of these, so a lot of these networks are relatively public or semi-public. So that kind of whole problem really goes away. It's really not, it's really not that big of a deal for them just because of what they are. The biggest things that I'm worried about, and I think people should be worried about, is things like, you know, when when um, you have smart weapons being developed that are that are hooked up to fairly sophisticated computers, and there's no protocol that says, hey, by the way, before you use this thing, make sure that the default account credentials that came with this machine are updated to something stronger. You know, it's not root admin. It's, it's something that is significantly harder to crack. You know, some very complicated passphrase, some very complicated character chain, something that requires challenge tokens. You know, you would think that, you know, militaries would be absolutely fantastic at encryption and security. And unfortunately, there have been a number of cases where you have drones showing unencrypted video on, oh. a, on publicly available channels and computer viruses getting into uh, computers that operate drones uh, or you have weapons being tested where you have targeting systems and navigation systems that just have default passwords that came with them and you have uh, hackers who are who are hard specifically to identify these shortcomings file very lengthy reports that say this is the problem this is how you mitigate it and then two years later they come back try and test them and f- and figure out that oh yeah well all these problems are still there even though the paperwork says that they've addressed it and when they look at the paperwork closer the paperwork says we understand the issue and we have created a plan to address it in 2067 (laughs) so this is this these are the things that we really should be worried about you know i would not be worried about your facebook password i'd be and actually probably your online password uh your online banking password i probably wouldn't be worried about that either because banks have uh have taken this very very seriously and they have a lot of they're now using a lot of ai a lot of fraud detection software uh, a lot of it very good uh but really your um your typical merchants, uh, any site where you're updating, uh, where you're uploading some sort of uh, personal information or personal documents, uh, your email. These are the things that I would be very concerned about. Well, it's interesting because we're, and by the way, we're in conversation with Greg Fish, uh, worldofweirdthings.com, where you can find all of his work. And Greg, you know, seven years ago, Super Bowl uh, between the San Francisco 49ers and the Baltimore Ravens being held in New Orleans and in the middle of the game, a huge power outage that lasts, oh, I want to say at least 40 minutes. If my memory serves right, it's probably closer to an hour. People worried, uh, obviously all the experts on location trying to scramble, figure out what happened. A hacker or a group of hackers claimed responsibility for that particular power outage, stating that they managed to get into the databases of uh, whatever power company or corporation that uh, was responsible for, of course, essentially being the ones that um, power the Super Bowl that night. And they managed to shut down like every process, every engine, whatever it is, generators, all these things. And they shut down the Super Bowl and disrupted what is the most popular televised event of the year in the United States. That was seven years ago. And it feels like maybe, you know, we haven't seen a power outage in the Super Bowl since, but it seems like there are still those kinds of vulnerabilities, assuming that what the hackers say is true. 
Yeah, unfortunately, they are. And again, they really do happen because people just kind of refuse to take security seriously. And again, unfortunately, the tools that they use also refuse to nudge them to use proper safety precautions. Hmm. Uh, you could, and, and I say this as, you know, and I say this as a programmer, you could create a system that doesn't let people create weak passwords. You could create a system that doesn't allow people to just use default credentials. Right. Uh, you could create systems that are better audited and uh, spend more time making sure that every endpoint is secure. And there's companies that do take this very seriously. For example, uh, all the major tech companies have these uh, bug bounties, where essentially if you can find how to break into their system, they will pay you money and they will fix the bugs that you find. And, hmm. and that's an agreement that's worked out very well for them. You know, Apple does that, Google does that, Microsoft does that. They, they very much are trying to say, well, if you're going to hack, um, why don't you hack for good? Why don't we make it worth your while with you know a nice princely sum, uh, and 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 you can and you can use your talents to help us make a more secure product because we know that our customers are gonna kind of refuse to uh, follow a lot of security protocols, and we have to kind of shoulder the burden of doing that for them as much as we possibly can. Uh, Greg, before we let you go, you know, we're in the middle of the U.S. presidential election campaigns. It's just weeks. Uh, actually, it's getting closer every day, of course. Knowing what you know, knowing the vulnerabilities that exist in the Internet and the cybersecurity all over the world, would you ever endorse uh, the, the theory, the idea that the election process could one day be digitalized where you could vote easily from your phone, for example? That might be simplifying it too much, but just using the power of the Internet so that you don't necessarily have to go to a voting station. No, I honestly, I have talked with experts in voting and <laughs> who actually work on the election system, and they all say paper ballots, best safest way to do it easiest to count <laughs> or you have a machine that immediately prints out a that immediately prints out a paper trail that is that is the safest best way to do it because any technology anything that's run by code could eventually be exploited all right hey greg really appreciate you giving us some insight here uh, you can check out greg fish's work the world of really appreciate this and uh, we'll connect i'm sure down the road at some point again greg Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's always a pleasure to be on The Shift. All right. Uh, that is Greg Fish. I uh, really appreciate him joining us on The Shift, and he'll be back with Shane uh, next week. I'm very sure about that. This is The Shift Daily Podcast. All right. Let's get into it. Are you okay? Uh, yes. The guitarist is here again. Are you okay with a 90-year-old longboarder? And you heard me correct. Not 19 90-year-old longboarder. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Right? I love it. If that was my grandpa, I'd probably suggest, you know, maybe, you know, hey, grandpa, uh, maybe you shouldn't do it. Uh, but um, but from, from an outside perspective, I am absolutely okay with it. If that was your grandpa and you told him, like, maybe don't do it, he would kick your ass. Probably. Like, that's, that's straight Probably. up. He would whoop you. <laughs> if your grandpa is fit enough to be longboarding, I'm not going to tell him to do anything. Like, I'm just going to be like, yo, grandpa, you do you. Yeah, you, you, got, you, live the be- you lived your best life. You've got more followers on Instagram than I do. Yeah, so who am I? So who that am I to so say true. anything? So obviously I'm in favor for it. I love the fact that somebody who's 90 years old is staying fit and active and doing something that I 
have never done, which is longboarding. Because longboarding is not just skateboarding. You're like going downhill at all times. And sometimes you're picking up crazy amounts of speed. So I'm all in favor of it. 90-year-old longboarder. That's that's excellent. But why are we talking about uh, the coolest grandpa in the world? Uh, so basically, this, this story comes out of uh, Nanaimo here in uh, BC on Vancouver Island. All right. So what started as a freestyle habit 30 years ago is now a downhill addiction for a Vancouver Island senior, Global Vancouver's Kylie Stanton has more on how the 90-year-old is inspiring others with his tricks and turns. So helmet is on. From a very young age, we're taught safety first. I won't get road rash, you see. A lesson that seems to stick no matter how old we get. So now I'm ready to walk. But especially when you're approaching 90. Here we go. And doing this. You lean and uh, the skateboard obeys, you see. There are a lot of reasons Gunter Gooch likes to ride. It's addictive. It's the cheapest way to travel, really. But it always comes back to just one thing. They do it because really it is fun. The Nanaimo man, who turns 90 at the end of this month, has been longboarding for three decades now. What started with his doctor recommending a walk after dinner. Gooch took it from there. I walk up to the mailbox, get some mail, get everything ready, and then come barreling down. As a former surfer, the sport came naturally. Because you have to have the balance with centrifugal and gravity, whatever is there. It uh, gets you into harmony with all the forces in the universe. It's a feeling that uh, you have to try it. And with every ride, he's inspiring others to do just that. It's not very common you see somebody, that, especially that age, zipping around the, uh, the neighborhood on a skateboard. I think everybody's pretty impressed with him. His wife included. First of all, I'm out of the house, which is always a plus, you see. But uh, now she, she realizes that I'm still alive and well, so... Not a lot of 90-year-old men could do it, so it's, I think it's amazing. And so he's going to keep at it. His stamina is still, for a 90-year-old, you know, it's uh, good. Proudly refusing to act his age. Give myself a push. For as long as he's able to. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Okay, I, I love that story. And oh I love goodness. that he's got like the German accent, uh, maybe Bavarian, which would make sense because uh, 90-year-old Mr. Gooch probably spent his youth slipping and sliding down the Alps. You know, like just I'm making my way to Austria so I can go down the mountains. Yeah, he's probably a good snowboarder too because I know longboarding, uh, it translates uh, pretty good to snowboarding. Yeah. Because it's the same uh, concept. And it's funny too because I have a cousin who fell while longboarding, and he just stopped completely. He fell in front of kids, and he got super embarrassed. Oh, come this, on. This shows that, you know, you're never going to be too old to longboard. So, and I like how it started, too, with the, the doctor recommending he walks. And he's just like, <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to longboard. Forget that. So your friend is weak sauce. I know, right? Like, come on, man. Uh, like, I mean, one you, mistake? You, you got it. Like, if you... Part of doing anything is making a complete idiot out of yourself and embarrassing yourself. But you pick up the pieces and you continue, and that's how you get good at something. That's right. If this 90-year-old can do it, I'm sure he can do it as well. Well, exactly. Come on, buddy. Pick up the longboard, try it again. Do it. It's good for you. What was that quote in Batman Begins? It's not how you fall, Bruce. It's how you get back up. Right? Yes. That's accurate. That, that, Papa that's Wayne is. has good advice. So you got to tell your friend, to watch, first of all, watch Batman Begins. I think that was Alfred, actually. Was it Alfred? That, yeah, I think that was Alfred. Yeah, it was Alfred. I think it's Alfred. Yeah. Oh. 
Well, doesn't matter. Then, he, then it's, <laughs> it's even fine. then it's even cooler because Alfred is awesome. Alfred is so I mean, yeah. At the end of the day, I love hearing uh, seniors staying active, staying fit. I love that he's obviously got a, like a German background. Uh, I so love cool. that he's cooler than me. <laughs> he's so cool. I, I like I, to. So um, I lived in the East Kootenai for a short time in my life, and there is a place in uh, the East Kootenai called Kimberley. It's the highest city in British Columbia. That's what they like to call themselves in terms of just like elevation. And in Kimberley, every summer, they have a longboarding competition where some of the top longboarders in the world come to Kimberley and they just ride the hills. Now, Kimberley is its own ski resort, but the longboard track, of course, it's done on cement and pavement. So they just shut down Kimberley roads while these longboarders are just zooming by. And it is a blast. It, it's a treat to watch. And honestly, the competitive longboarding scene, it's a lot of fun. You know how like the Red Bull crashed ice w- became super, super popular? Yeah. It took like the best parts of hockey with figure skating and all these things and put it all together. Longboarding takes the best part of skateboarding, snowboarding, and w- w- what's the like luge? Public you transportation? Know, <laughs> yeah, like in a way. And just mix it all together and you got this great... Uh, extreme sport. Now, obviously, the 90-year-old here in this story isn't going down <laughs> zipping on like world-class tracks and things like that. But just the fact that he's doing this, hopefully, it's inspiring others to maybe think about doing the same thing. Also, it's environmentally friendly. Yes, so, it is. Something to keep in mind. Uh, we've got, uh, quickly before we get to the next Are You Okay, Catherine out in Surrey wants to talk about a story uh, about falling and then getting back up. Catherine, welcome to The Shift. Thank you. I just thought it was funny because it was the very first time I went out adventuring with high heels. Oh. And I was a, and I was a teenager, and you know Surrey Place Mall, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I come out of the bay, and it's all carpet, and then I go into the main part of the mall, and it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's all ceramic, right? And first step on there, <laughs> I'm flying, and I ended up on my butt. And, you know, as a teenager, all the hot guys around looking, right? I was so embarrassed. <laughs> I just sat there and laughed. I just laughed my face off, and I got up, and it, it never faced me. No. I just, so you need to laugh at yourself if you do fall. Well, exactly. And, 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 you know, you have to learn not to take yourself too seriously. And moments like this will stick with you. But I'm glad that you can look back at it years later, Catherine, and just laugh about it now. Totally. All right. Hey, Catherine, thanks so much for the call. As always, I really appreciate you uh, calling us and contributing here to the shift. And, you know, it's a good point. I once was on a cruise and, you know, they have like these big grand staircases that wind up and down the decks. Uh, Well, when we get onto the cruise ship for the first time, each floor has its own little orientation where they tell you the safety measures and all these things. So they gather everyone near the stair staircase. My floor finished early. So I was going up and down the staircase to try and look for my cousins who were on different floors and all these things. I walk down the staircase and I see like easily 200 people doing this orientation. They're all staring at the direction of the staircase. And I get so embarrassed that I turn around and start walking back up, but I miss a step and I just fall on my face, like on the staircase. I'm just bailed out Ooh. and everyone starts laughing, right? Because it's, it's funny. Like this, oh, this nerdy Asian kid just started, you know, just drifting. Film. I was mortified. I ran right back up to my cabin, locked myself there for hours. And I just convinced myself like this trip is already ruined. And it's literally the first day we haven't even left the port yet. But 
days later, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying, I'm um, trying to enjoy the weather on the deck. And somebody comes up to me and says, hey, you're that kid that fell. You all right? You know, we just laughed about it. It's fine. You know, things happen. So it's, it's an important lesson there to learn. Don't take yourself too seriously. Nobody makes out a life alive. All right. Are you okay? Let's quickly move on here. Are you okay? With politicians going to work while they're supposed to be quarantining, um, no, yeah, even I, if it's for the betterment of like, I know they're trying to do, you know, the, like the whole public service thing, mm-hmm. they're politicians, right? but they're not exempt from the rule. You know what I mean? If, if you're supposed to be quarantining for a certain amount of days, you quarantine. I don't care if you're a politician. On one hand, you know, like if you, if you were like really f- sick with the flu, um, you, you know, you, I guess you suck it up. You try not to get your, your staff sick at work, but you, you know, you, the public is counting on you to get things done. I think similarly, those that are fighting like terminal illnesses, we applaud the efforts of people that can go through chemotherapy and yet still work and grind and do those things, um, which obviously deserves a ton of commendation. But in the term in the sense that it's a COVID-19, like it's a literal virus that we know can infect and kill people with a, an alarming rate of mortality, I would say no. I'm not okay with somebody going to work while they're supposed to be quarantining regardless of their occupation. I think it's a unanimous no. Get, get out of here. Yeah. That's all I have to say about it. Get out of here. <laughs> like, Go home. Leave. Yeah. Leave. Go home. You know, pay, like read. Use basic, you know, human... Common sense, maybe, maybe this person lacks it. It's very likely. You've lost my vote. That's well, all you have to say, right? Well, exactly. It's You've really lost tone, my vote. It's really tone deaf as well. It's like you're sort of ignoring what the main issue in the world is right now by by te- by going into work. It doesn't matter what your position is. Mm. Like if there's rules, you you follow the rules. No one is no one is exempt from that. Nobody's exempt. So who are we talking about here? And I and I don't think it's the U.S. president, although he's probably in the same category. It is not. He is in the same category. <laughs> Um, But uh, Senator Mike Lee, um, who tested positive for COVID-19 less than two weeks ago, appeared in person today for the first day of Judge Amy Coney Barrett's Supreme Court confirmation hearing. Here is what he said at the hearing. We've heard this morning a number of arguments that are essentially policy arguments, many of them geared toward actual policies, in some cases, actual pieces of legislation. If you were watching today's hearing, And some of the statements made by some of my colleagues, in fact, if you were to look at any of the uh, countless posters put up in here, you'd think that this was a political discussion, a policy discussion, a legislative discussion. One might also have the impression, from watching this morning's proceedings so far, that the Supreme Court of the United States is a remarkably bitter, cynical, and overwhelmingly partisan place. It is not. The most common configuration of a Supreme Court decision is not five to four, it's not even six to three, it's in fact nine to zero, eight to one, and seven to two make up the vast, overwhelming majority of all Supreme Court decisions. Cool story, bro, but why are you at work? Exactly. (laughs) It's like, I'm pretty sure people were looking at him like, dude. You're supposed to be at home. Right. What are you doing here? And and if I'm not mistaken, like most Supreme Court uh, justices and judges, they're like seniors. They're in the category they're of people old. that would be even more at risk. Exactly. They're, yeah, they're old. So um, he is putting them at risk by going into work. And then 
yeah, it just, it just, I don't know. It's really tone deaf in my opinion. Oh man, not great. Not a great look. This is the Shift Daily Podcast. Right now, though, uh, we're joined by a very special guest, a man who was recently inducted into the Canadian Basketball Hall of Fame that was last year, representing Team Canada at the 1984 Summer Olympics, and a man who has an incredibly polished high school basketball career. Here to talk some hoops. Very uh, very happy, very proud to say that we are joined by Howard Kelsey. Howard, thanks so much for joining us here tonight on The Shift. Hey, John, my pleasure. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving to you and to everybody listening. Yes, absolutely. Happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. And uh, it's great that we have you on here as we're just on the heels of yet another Lakers championship winning their series against the Miami Heat 4-2 to with an emphatic victory last night. And before we get into anything else, I want to know really quickly, with four championships now under his belt, four finals MVPs as well, does that move the needle for you at all in terms of that never-ending argument of trying to find out who is the greatest of all time? Is it LeBron James... Or is it Michael Jordan? Where are you on that? Well, uh, Michael has more titles. And actually, everybody keeps forgetting Bill Russell dwarfs them all with 11. Mm. Uh, that's unheralded in any uh, sport worldwide. But anyways, at the end of the day, is yes, it is moving the needle. And also, as a physical specimen, no offense to Michael, I played against Michael in the 84 Olympics twice. Um, LeBron... I, I am hard to think of, other than maybe Wilt Chamberlain, uh, but he doesn't play the positions that LeBron does. I haven't seen an athlete in any sport as big, strong, quick, powerful, you name it, as LeBron James. Oh, great point. I mean, Michael Jordan, impeccable finals record, but you're right. You're absolutely right. Bill Russell, look, uh, 11 championships, five MVPs, 12-time All-Star, uh, two more championships as a coach. Back-to-back years with the Celtics, untouchable. So yes, he absolutely has to be in the mix. But truly, in the modern day of sports science, I think you're right. LeBron James is a unicorn, just one of a kind, a type of athlete we might never again see in our lifetimes. Just tremendous. Now, Howard, uh, we got you on to talk more about basketball in Canada and specifically what we might be seeing in youth. Because while hockey will always be Canada's game... It's a well-known fact that hockey is tremendously expensive for families, from equipment costs to personal coaching, league registration fees. We're already talking thousands of dollars every year, and that's for one child in a household. Basketball, on the other hand, is relatively inexpensive, and we're seeing that sport become really attractive to all the younger generations. I wanted to see if you're sort of seeing that for yourself as somebody who's still closely involved with the game at all levels. Uh, the answer is yes, I am. Um, the the difference is the accessibility of basketball. And again, I don't want to get into the uh, sacred argument about whether hockey is going to remain Canada's game. Uh, the beauty of this one is, is that Dr. James Naismith invented basketball, so basketball is Canada's game as well. I think we can both share the stage. But the truth is, and the same with the, uh, football, you have to buy a tremendous amount of equipment to play most sports except for basketball, or unless you're a cross-country runner, uh, <laughs> because there's basketball courts, thousands, more than ice rinks all over our country in North America and around the world. You don't even need your own ball. You just need somebody who's got a ball. Uh, in some countries, they don't even wear shoes. So the short answer is, yes, it's a very cheap game to play. Uh, it's uh, the, uh, the most ironic is it's the most uh, lucrative at the end if you get to the rainbow. 
So, for example, Kelly Olenek out of uh, Kamloops High School, uh, 50 million U.S. You just saw him play in the finals. Uh, it's not an expensive sport, and it's accessible to all people, races, size, uh, huge, small. There's room for everybody, as you can see by watching the uh, NBA playoffs, and uh, it's a very accessible game. And also, um, again, when you're wearing protective gear on your face, as you do in NFL football or as you do in, in hockey, uh, the recognition of the person, we're literally out there in our underwear, uh, although it's stylish. Uh, so you get to see and feel the people in a much different environment. There's no plexiglass uh, separating you from the fans. And so the fans feel and see and relate to the best one recently with Canada would be Jamal Murray. Very good point. I mean, that's why people love getting those courtside seats. That's why Jack Nicholson has been there at the Lakers games for like 30 years in a row. There's nothing like being there. You can hear the players yell. You can almost like taste the sweat, which sounds kind of gross, but it's one of a kind. It's its own experience. But, you know, I, I love that you mentioned diversity and the representation that exists in basketball. You look at hockey and it's still very much, fundamentally speaking, played by, uh, is coached by, and is managed by white men. That's the history of that game. Now, we're thankfully seeing that change a little bit more, but basketball on its own has an extremely diverse player pool in the NBA. Uh, I mean, certainly you've got players from Canada and the U.S., but also players from Europe, from Asia, all over the world, and they're not just bit pieces or depth players. Sometimes they're the star players for the teams. They might be superstars that represent the NBA at large, thinking about uh, Yao Ming, of course. So in terms of how it represents the game, in my opinion, there's no other sports uh, sport in North America that really does it better than basketball. Basketball, and again, I'm not tooting our own horn. I, I was an athlete in various sports before I went into basketball, basketball is the most uh, unique sport because you play offense and defense. Uh, you have little guys, big guys. You have guys that can jump to the moon. You have guys that can't even jump. You have slow guys. You have extremely fast people, great shooters, terrible shooters. There's all kinds of, uh, of, of, of diversity there uh, in terms of physical specimen, also mentality. So basketball is a very unique game and also has been the leader. Generally, one could argue that FIFA has been the best marketed in the world. But generally, the NBA is regarded as the leader in marketing, in hipness. And I have to take my hat off to Adam Silver and the NBA because I think they're the only league now that has zero COVID infections over four months. And the way that they presented it, they were smart enough to stay in one venue in the bubble. Whereas as soon as you know that you're like Major League Baseball, the poor guys are at various sites all over North America, well, you're going to expose yourself to a lot more infection, just as the NFL has shown. So NBA is generally regarded as a leader in sport in terms of its hipness and in terms of its marketing ability. It, it did start the globalization uh, of, 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 of basketball, and it's kind of led the world. Arguably, soccer has been the world's biggest global game, but generally, in terms of now, the youth of today, youth of today is 100% into basketball. In conversation with Canadian Basketball Hall of Fame inductee Howard Kelsey here on The Shift with John Jang. And I'm glad, Howard, uh, that you brought up NBA Commissioner Adam Silver. I think he is, without a doubt, the best sports commissioner 
uh, in North America. You know, he's got such a great mind for the game, very in tune with how the league should be marketing its players, very progressive, knowing that the NBA has a responsibility to its players and its fans to be part of something bigger than just basketball. Like, for example, you know, the social justice movements that we saw over the summer, uh, Black Lives Matter, the NBA very quickly sprung into action, if you remember in the bubble, actually protesting games canceling them, and then forcing the league to think about what they could do to support those movements. And LeBron James, for example, has never been shy about voicing his opinions and using his platform to get very involved with social justice matters. So the NBA has always stayed one or maybe several steps uh, ahead of their counterparts in terms of, you know, just being very connected to their fan base, knowing, you know, the kind of supporters that they have. Now, with all that said, the entire fan base uh, was disappointed. We didn't get to see the best players in the world perform at the Summer Olympics that were supposed to happen this year. For now, of course, it's been tentatively scheduled for next summer, uh, COVID-19 pending. Quickly here, I want to get your thoughts on whether or not you think this is even going to happen next year. Uh, Well, my hope is yes, but we cannot say that yet because the end of the day, and you have another complicating factor here, the number one thing will be the health situation I'm guessing by about March, they're going to have to flip the flip the coin and say, okay, well, where are we? How do we travel? And then imagine yourself being the poor head of the IOC trying to figure out if you're going to do sports with no fans, right? You might be able to put it on, but are there going to be fans? The Olympics without fans, they're not going to be so smooth. So that's not good. And then in our case in basketball, we're more complex because Adam Silver has already gone on the record about 10 days ago that the NBA season will not start till about the middle of January. So if that's the case, you're backing their season up and they're not compromising the number of games. There's 82 games in a regular NBA season. That would carry you to the first week of June in the regular season. And therefore, the teams that made it, which will be eight in the East and eight in the West, assuming they don't change their format, but they probably won't, that means that the only ones that could play in our Team Canada which we were very excited for because we have one of the best teams now outside of Team USA uh, by the fact we've got more than 10 stellar NBA players, including Jamal Murray, including Andrew Wiggins, including R.J. Barrett, you name it, Tristan Thompson, Kelly Olynyk, Dwight Powell, a lot. Um, we may not have some of those players available for the pre-Olympic qualifier in Victoria, and then we have to see who's going deep into the playoffs because they may even overlap So basketball is much more complex than other sports because we could still be playing the NBA playoffs and we would be without some of our players. So to answer your question quickly, yes, I hope it happens, but there is no medical assurance because you'd have to be an expert in that to make that assurance. And nobody could pull the trigger on that November the 1st. They're going to have to pull that trigger, I'm guessing. I'm sure Dick Pound will be heavily involved in it. Uh, I'm guessing around April the 15th. Those are great points. I actually didn't even think about the scheduling before until just now as you brought it up. I mean, logistically, yeah, it doesn't seem like a very good combination of things, especially when you consider somebody like Jamal Murray is the new Canadian superstar who's going to be counted on to lead Team Canada. Uh, The only problem is if Jamal Murray plays like Jamal Murray can, his Denver Nuggets will be too deep into the playoffs next year for him to even be available. So that will be something to monitor here. Uh, But in terms of just representing Team Canada, Howard, you've done that before. You know what it's like to put on the maple leaf on your chest and go out there and play. 
not just for yourself, not just for the teammates on the court with you, but for an entire country. What does it mean having the chance to answer the call when your country comes calling like that? Well, it, it means, in my particular case, it means everything because it's shaped my life since uh, I came straight out of high school. There's only four of us that's, that's done that in history, Leo Routens being another one. Um, I came from Point Grey. He came from St. Mike's in Toronto. But it means everything for us because in our era, we were the original golden era. We were in the top five in the world. Uh, we lost the bronze medal to what was then Yugoslavia, which would be uh, people would know Vladi Divac or the deceased Drazen Petrovic. Uh, we played against Michael Jordan, Pat Ewing, the original Dream Team 84. Um, so, And also now it will mean more because with the social media and the coverage that the NBA gets now, and ever since the 92 Dream Team, uh, the 100-meter uh, men's final may be the premier event in the Olympics. Pretty hard not to have uh, men's basketball as one of the drawing cards in the Olympic Games and the amount of media especially the dream team brings. But now you've got so many NBA players in different countries. We're capable of having 10 of our 12 at least on our roster um, this year. So it will mean a lot. And the, the, the level of media attention, especially the higher that you finish, we want to be in the medal hunt. Uh, you, can, you can see from uh, just the coverage of uh, Jamal Murray in the last month, he's become, not that he wasn't before, now he's become a superstar. No Canadian scored 50 back-to-back in the NBA uh, playoffs. Absolutely. Jamal Murray, man, this guy deserves all of it. I love the fact that he is now the guy, the guy, you know, when we're talking about Canadian basketball and still just 23 years old. The most exciting thing about that, we haven't even seen him at his best. And that should terrify the rest of the world and the NBA for that matter. Uh, Howard, before we let you go here, you know, last year we saw how excited Canadians got following the Toronto Raptors championship run. Kawhi Leonard finally delivering what Vince Carter, DeMar DeRozan, Chris Bosh, and so many others just couldn't do, which is to bring the championship to Canada. Uh, What did it mean for you in those months during the Raptors playoff run last year to see just the amount of engagement that the sport was receiving from Canadians all over the country? Well, it's, it's huge for all of us. I'm part of the Alumni Association for Team Canada, so we've literally been tripping away at this for almost 45, 50 years, since the 70s. Uh, it, again, if you're talking about where does it stand in the stature of Canada, and this is not disrespectful to the Stanley Cup and not disrespectful to hockey because it is our game and it has uh, Hockey Night in Canada has been an icon, but... Uh, no Stanley Cup parade, or actually no parade of any championship that I'm aware of in the Western Hemisphere, might be different in soccer uh, in some countries in Europe or in South America. But I think, didn't we have a two million person parade? Mm-hmm. Well, yep. there's never been a two million person Stanley Cup parade that I'm aware of. So that would show you. And then across the country where we had the, uh, the watch parties, those have never happened before in any other sport. So Basketball now, is, it, I'm with a lot of people that are heavily involved in basketball, but they usually didn't tr- transcend the basketball community. Now basketball transcends the basketball community. It's hip. Everybody wants a piece of it. And, and we have to give a lot to the Lakers Showtime because they're the ones that originally put that on 
outside of the basketball community. It became an entertainment uh, avenue where it was hip to get the Jack Nicholson seats. Just the fact that we call them the Jack Nicholson seats uh, attests to that. <laughs> I'll admit, I've never sat courtside at an NBA game, uh, but make no mistake, that is absolutely one of those bucket list items. Howard, thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, that is Howard Kelsey. Uh, Canadian Basketball Hall of Fame inductee member of 2019. Howard, this was an excellent chat. Really glad we could connect tonight and get your thoughts on all things Canada and basketball. So thank you so much for your time. You bet you have a great Thanksgiving. Oh, that's uh, that, just a great conversation with Howard. And I love that he mentions the Jack Nicholson seats. If you've ever had the chance to sit courtside an NBA game, boy, that's an experience you don't, uh, you, you honestly never forget. show content and clips from the shift with drax go to the shift with drax.ca 911 what's your emergency ah, i'm on a cruise ship ah, there was an explosion oh my god the ship is sinking i can't get out there's water everywhere we're going down i've got a lock on your location stay with me hello are you there Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.